Okay, um, this morning, welcome dads, Father's Day, happy Father's Day. We're going to be in Psalm 36, invite you to turn there. If you're reading along with us this summer, this was from early in the week, and I encourage you to do that. You can get hard copy schedule, there's some on the table on your way out here. Um, to be reading a psalm a day or a couple psalms a day with us throughout the summer, and then we preach on one of those that you've read this week. And so we're going to look at Psalm 36 this morning, and I want to start just with verse 1. It appears that David, who wrote this psalm along with many of them, um, has, has had his heart stirred by the Lord. And here's what he says in Psalm 36, verse 1. He says, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. So he says, I got, there's wicked all around us, there's sinfulness all around us, and God has stirred my heart and helped me to realize, here's the next sentence, there's no fear of God before their eyes. David says, this is a problem, they don't have the right foundation. Because when he talks about the fear of the Lord, he was the, the, the one who originally helped us understand that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That comes to us from Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. So David, who is a man after God's own heart, who has his life anchored to the very person of God, realizes People around him in culture do not. They haven't even taken the first step. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then in verses 2 through 4, David kind of describes these people who, who do not fear God. And so let's just quickly go through some of those characteristics. The first one really stands out to me in verse 2. It says, these people who don't fear God, he says, in their own eyes they flatter themselves. They flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. Let me just comment on that. <laughs> People who don't fear God, they flatter themselves. And our world is full of this. We hear it all the time. People say, oh, that person's basically good. They say of themselves, I'm basically good. Maybe I'm not perfect. I haven't done this or that. But, you know, I'm basically good, and he's good, and they're good, and we just have to embrace everybody's goodness. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there's no one righteous, not even one. But the, the, we're blind to that. So much so that David says, when we flatter ourselves by thinking we're just the, these great, wonderful people, we can't hate our sin, we, we can't even detect it. So it's in there, but we don't even realize it. It's really significant. He goes on in verse 3 to say the words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or do good. Because again, they so flatter themselves, they can't even detect their own wickedness. So there's no attempt to turn from it. And so the words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful in order to advance their own personal agenda. And they fail to act wisely because wisdom is not in us naturally. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is something that God gives us, that God pours into us and grants us. And if you don't fear God, you don't have it. So they can't act wisely. They can't do good. It's just not in them. If we've ever seen that culturally, we're seeing it again now with another wave that exposes racial prejudice within the human heart. People can't think and act wisely when there's prejudice in their heart. 
But one of our biggest problems in our culture, particularly as white people, is we don't get that. <laughs> Maybe we have prejudice in our heart and we don't know it because we flatter ourselves. Mm. We'll talk more later in this message about how the fear of the Lord exposes some of that. He goes on, David says, and this gets a little more intense now in verse 4, he says, even on their beds they plot evil, so they're not just naive to evil within them or how that they speak deceptively, but now they, they're kind of leveraging evil for their own personal gains. He says they commit themselves to a sinful course and do not reject wrong. So I think this is true of many people in our culture that are trying to advance themselves they're okay with wickedness and evil. They may even leverage it for themselves to get ahead. And they fail to reject what is wrong. Now, it's Father's Day. Dads, I don't know about you. Well, I do know about you. That's why you're here. We don't want to be that guy, do we? We don't want to be that person that so flatters themselves that their household is all about them. We don't want to be that dad that is more interested in control so his personal life is more comfortable and goes better than he is the needs of his children and his household. We don't want to be that guy that is so naive to our own wickedness that we can't hate our sin or even detect it. Because that's not what we want to pass on to our children. We want to pass on to our children what David talks about next. And what you see David doing in this psalm, along with so many, is applying what we teach you all the time, the four P's around crossroads. And he kind of poured out his heart here, the, one of the P's, about wickedness and the wickedness that he sees around him. Now he's going to make a distinct turn and start to think about God. And we call that pondering because there's an intentionality to it. If you look at verse 5, he says, Your love, Lord. So it's very different. He's talking about people who flatter themselves, can't even see or hate their own sin, they reject or, or they commit themselves to a sinful course and they fail to reject wrong. Now, now he says, but God, it's a distinct turning. And that's kind of the essence of this word ponder, means to consider carefully and to think deeply about. And it's different than just kind of that Eastern mysticism meditation where you go in the woods or you sit by fire or water and you just cleanse your soul of anything in you and you just go, hum. that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about pondering. It's a different kind of meditation. To ponder is an intentionally turning the focus to God. It's intentionally thinking about Him, thinking theologically, thinking about what Scripture reveals that we can know about God, how God acts, what His character is like, the things He does for us. And that's what David does in this psalm and so many. And so he says in verse 5, Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Let me just read a few verses. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. So he's just listing these characteristics of God. And he's meditating on that. He's thinking intentionally about God. And one of the things I want you to notice, he speaks of God very personally and very present here. He's not speaking of God as some far away being. Verse 5, he says, if, if he was doing that, he'd say, yeah, God, you're, you're the creator of all things, and yeah, you're loving. But no, he says, your love is here. It envelops me, and it reaches to the heavens. 
Your faithfulness is here, and it reaches to the skies. It's, uh, what David is saying is, I'm th- this global presence of your love and your faithfulness. You are here. He's not talking about some faraway God, but a present reality. Verse 6 is the same. He says, your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Let me just pause and give you some thoughts there. It's, it's good to think about some of the creation metaphors that David uses, because a lot of his psalms, you can just kind of picture him sitting out looking at the mountains, or um, looking at the water, or seeing the sky and the heavens, as he calls it. And so here, he's saying, your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Well, think about that in his culture, before the days of GPS, before the days of really any mapping, how did you find your way around? You looked for the highest peak, that was your true north. And you knew which side of the peak you were looking on, so you knew where you were, and then you kind of oriented yourself from there. David says, that's what your righteousness is like, God. It's my true north. It's how I know what's right and what's wrong. And think of how stable a mountain is. It's secure. It's immovable. We love to ride motorcycle through the mountains, and it's, it's great to be on a motorcycle because you don't have to look out your window. You don't have to go like this because it's, it's just all right there. And oftentimes when we're riding in the mountains, I just see a peak and I go, wow, that's not moving. (laughs) You could blow a few missiles into that bad boy and it might change how it looks a little bit, but it's not going anywhere. It's stable, secure, rooted. It's a rock. David says, your righteousness is like that. It's unchanging, stable. I can anchor my life to it. And then he says, The last sentence of verse 6, Lord, you preserve both people and animals. There's a preservation element here that that he trusts God about these things. These are what the people who fear God know about God. And they know it not just in a cognitive sense, but in an experiential sense. And David says that in verse 7 when he says, How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. David's saying, I've experienced your love, and it's invaluable to me. I can't hang a price tag on it. And this was a man who was wealthy, who could buy a lot of stuff, who could, who could get things by power and, and military. But he says, I can't put a price tag on your love. That's priceless. And he rests in that. He lives in it. So this is a statement of experience less than it is a cognitive declaration. And then he says, people who take refuge in the shadow of your wing. What a beautiful thing. Then... Verse 8, look at it with me, church, I love this. One of my favorite verses of the Psalms. Verse 8, he says, They, which is referring to people who fear the Lord, they feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from your river of delights, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. David says, Those who fear the Lord and who orient their lives around his righteousness and his justice, they're They feast on the abundance of his house. Again, this is not a God's a far away, really awesome God. He is that. But he's opened the way for me to feast on his abundance. I can not only know him with my mind, but I can experience him because I can be in relationship and even something more than relationship. Now, I want to just park here a minute and lead us through this in a really a time of worship. Um, this idea of abundant provision. And men, again, fathers, think of this particularly for you. As a father, as a man, you, um, 
you have this sense, you have this compulsion to provide for your family, and that's exactly as it should be, because that's why God has wired you. That's one of the tasks God has given to you, to work hard, to provide for your family. But you also then feel pressure about that, <laughs> and you feel scarcity of time, and you feel scarcity of money, and you feel scarcity of energy to be the best for your children that you could be. That's why I love this verse. They feast on the abundance of your house. If you're going to be the kind of man that God wants you to be, you've got to find a source of energy and strength and power. And God says he's that source. David says they, the people who fear God, they feast on him. He becomes their source of rightness, of strength, of energy. And that's completely consistent with the gospel of the New Testament. And honestly, folks, men and women, children, we, we, have, we can have something David didn't have. He looked ahead to the event of the gospel. He knew that God was his source of abundance, but he couldn't experience that in the way that we do. Here's why I say that. John chapter 7, Jesus was teaching at one of the festivals of the Jews, and they had many. And so... Multiple times a year, the Jewish people would come together and they'd bring sacrifices because they thought they had to appease this God who was so far away. But Jesus says something radical here on the last day of this festival. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So what Jesus is referencing here is the Holy Spirit. We'll see that in the next verse. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. That means David didn't get to receive it. Because up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. David didn't have opportunity to have the indwelling, empowering presence of the Holy Spirit like we can have. He just had to see it from a distance. And yet he had the vision and he had the hope of feasting on the abundance of God's household. But for us, it's more than hope. We can because Jesus has opened the way that we can feast on the abundance of God's household. Now I want you to take in the seat in front of you, it, these are communion elements for you. COVID's not going to stop us from sharing in the Lord's elements but obviously we're doing a new application, a new process of that. If you're in the front row, maybe reach around behind you or through underneath and you'll find one of these little things in your loop in the seat back. And if you're prepared to take communion this morning, I want you to take this. Don't, don't mess with it yet because it's more difficult to open up than you might think. Uh, <laughs> you'll notice, and, and don't do this yet, I'm going to read another scripture, but there's two little layers you have to peel back. The first one is clear, and when you peel that back, that reveals a wafer that is a representation of the body of Christ. And then we peel the little purple thing off and we get to the cup that represents his blood. But before we go there, I want to read to you from uh, John chapter 6. We often read portions of this chapter before we partake of communion. In this chapter, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And they're like, wow, how did he do that? And then he teaches them. And he teaches them really using that lesson of him providing for them food. He takes it a, a step farther. And so let's pick it up. Oh, you don't need to turn there. I'll just read to you from John chapter 6. 
I'm going to start here with verse 44, where Jesus said, uh, excuse me, let me start a little later, verse 48. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And 24 hours earlier, he had fed 5,000 men plus women and children from a couple loaves that were there. So that when he says that, they're like, huh? Because he just fed them. So they're very in tune here, right? He says, I'm the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Who provided the manna in the wilderness? It's not a trick question. God did. They woke up every morning and there's this stuff all over the ground and they could make bread out of it and God provided for them. But they all died, Jesus said. Jesus said, but anyone who eats the bread from heaven, anyone who eats this bread from heaven will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread which I will offer so the world may live is my flesh. So Jesus provided bread for 5,000 plus people. But then he says, spiritually, if you want to live forever, it's not that I give you spiritual nourishment. I am your spiritual nourishment. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. So he says later, anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day, for my flesh is true food. And my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. And so Jesus talks about a union that we can have with him, in him, when we partake of him. And so when, God, when David says they feast on the abundance of God's household, Jesus, who's broken and poured out for us, opened the way that we can feast on God and find our life in him, our satisfaction in him. And so that's what we do when we partake of these elements. This is a symbolic expression of us receiving, ingesting Jesus Christ broken and poured out for us. He is the bread. He is the nourishment. So if you would now, if you're prepared to take communion in your heart, if you'd peel off that top little cellophane thingy and reveal this little wafer. If you're my age, you might have to put your glasses on to find that little cellophane deal to get that off of there. It's a little tricky. But you definitely want to do that before you open the whole thing. It just gets messy if you, if you don't do that. So, all right. Church, this represents the body of Christ, which was broken for you. This isn't the nourishment. This is a symbol of the nourishment. The nourishment is Jesus himself. So let's eat this now in remembrance of him. Lord Jesus, we praise you that your body was broken. You voluntarily allowed your body to be broken that we might find sustenance, nourishment, strength, life in you and in you alone. And so as we've swallowed now this little wafer, Lord, we want to swallow your spirit. We want to receive you. We want to feed on the abundance of your house. Thanks for being broken for us. Amen. And if you take the other thing and open that up, 
Paul said of that last supper, he said, after supper, Jesus also took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Again, this cup is not the nourishment. It's not what Jesus gives us. Jesus is the nourishment. He's the cup. He's the bread. So let's drink this now in remembrance of him. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that you are our life. That through your brokenness, we can truly ingest and feed on the abundance of God's household. We rest in that. We praise you and we thank you. In your name and for your glory, amen. David says in the next verse, verse 9, for with you is the fountain of life. That great, approach a fountain and drink from it. There's life. There's life in Christ. What David could only see in the future, we can experience, we can ingest moment to moment by faith as we petition the life of Christ to come to us, to come within us, and to change us. Now, just by way of summary, this isn't necessarily from the psalm, but particularly for the men. Men, when we seek to be rooted in Christ, when we seek our foundation to begin with the fear of the Lord and to culminate in our union with Jesus so we're anchored in him and we're one with him and we're inseparable, we're finding our life and our sustenance in the person of Jesus Christ because of the work of Jesus Christ, one of the first things we realize is that our hearts are sinful and that we've kind of been flattering ourselves and fooling ourselves. Soon as we get this idea of the fear of the Lord in focus, one of the first things he does is help us to realize I have an inaccurate perception of myself. And therefore we need to repent. And that's the beginning of wisdom. So this fear of the Lord idea, that's, that's where it starts. It's the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom that we don't have naturally that comes to us as a gift of God because of what Jesus Christ did. Fear of the Lord's the beginning of that. And so repentance is the beginning of this. When God shows us our need for Him, when God shows us that, hmm, maybe I don't have it all figured out. I need Him. Only then can we not only see that we have wickedness in our heart, but we can hate it. Because we want Jesus. Second thing that happens here, like David talked about in this psalm with the righteousness of a mountain, is that Jesus Christ then becomes my true north for living. So when I see my need of him, I repent and turn to him, then he reorients my life. And I learn what I ought to do and what I ought not do. I learn where I ought to go and where I ought not go. I learn what I ought to say and when I ought to be silent because Jesus Christ becomes my true north. And so I trust in him, not my own ideologies, not my own views, not my own passions or emotions. No, he is my true north, not any of that other stuff. And then thirdly, regardless of what I'm facing, even a time like this with such social chaos around us and fear and the concern with COVID and all the things that we're dealing with, number three, when we fear the Lord, he becomes this abundant feast for us. And I can feed on him in difficult times. 
And I can be encouraged and be nourished and be strengthened and be okay even when crazy stuff is going on around me. And then number four, as I feed on him, as I feast on Jesus, recognizing that his broken body and shed blood is my nourishment, then he becomes for me my righteousness, holiness, and redemption, it says in 1 Corinthians 1.30. I love this verse. It's not that Jesus so empowers me to figure out a way that I can live righteously. It's not that Jesus gives me such a new vision that I can be set apart to be a holy person. It's not that Jesus helps me understand for a particular sacrifice or if I do a certain thing, then I'm redeemed. No, Jesus is those things for me. He becomes my righteousness. He becomes my holiness. He becomes my redemption. It's not that he teaches me those things. He becomes those things for me. So I rest in him. I rest under the cover of his righteousness. I trust that he will redeem my sinfulness for his own glory. I trust that he will buy me back and change me. I trust that he will set me apart to live differently because he is my true north. This all starts with the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. And it leads us to Jesus, it grows us in Jesus, and it culminates us, completes us in Jesus. <coughs> now, dads, uh, you know it, we all know it, this, this walking in unity with Jesus, this thing is a marathon, not a sprint. Full disclosure, I hate marathons. Can't imagine why anybody would want to run one. I was a shot put guy in high school, and I'd run a couple sprints, the 100 and the 200, and for crying out loud, I had to pace myself just to run the 200. That's just only one time around the thing. This distance. What's that? It is half of one lap. That's right. See, I... (laughs) Thank you. Felt like a lap to me. Still does, obviously. Thank you, brother. Half around the track. I didn't like that. So I don't like marathons. Most of you don't either. But that's what this is. And you know, if I could run a marathon and every 200 meters stop and eat something, (laughs) I'd think about it. All right? Take me about a week to run it, but boy, I'd be satisfied. That's the opportunity Jesus gives to us. Because this life, fathers, this parenting thing, it's a marathon. You never, ever, ever stop being a dad once you are a dad. You don't want to stop being a dad. And you just get more dad stuff because you get grandkids. Praise Jesus. That's just an awesome thing. There's a whole new dimension of dadness. I see Jarrett shaking his head. Isn't it? Is it what? So it's a marathon. It's a marathon in which we need a lot of nourishment. It's a marathon in a dark place where everybody's running a journey, but most people aren't focused on the right things. Most of them are just flattering themselves, and they can't even hate their sin, let alone detect it. Because they're not anchored to an unchanging, immovable, certain, present God. And that's what we can have in Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you men to just kind of, to wrap this psalm up, you can kind of pray verse 10 and 11. And I think this is kind of David's prayer, recognizing it's a marathon. Obviously, he wouldn't use that language, but 
Verse 10, he says, God, continue your love to those who know you. Continue your righteousness to the upright in heart. May the foot of the proud not come against me. Don't discourage me by proud, wicked people, God. Don't allow me to be discouraged. Nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. Don't let me wander off because of the influence of wickedness around me. That's what he's saying. He's saying, God, I recognize this is a marathon. Help me stay focused when it gets hard, when I'm tired, when I'm exhausted, when I don't have any strength left, when my feet hurt, when my back hurts, when everything hurts. Nourish me. May I turn to you and may I feast on the abundance of your house that I can keep going and be faithful to those kids I love and their mother for your glory. Men, it all starts with where you anchor yourself. And so my encouragement for you today is to seek that theological foundation. And if that's new to you, if, if you're not even sure what we mean about that, and this fear of the Lord, usually when I use that phrase, there's some questions that come with it. We got a lot of stuff here to help you, men. Um, we got some discipleship groups we call Every Man a Warrior groups. It's a great curriculum. We're going to have a bunch of those starting in the fall. And... Uh, the thing is about a marathon, you do much better if you run it with somebody, so I'm told. Uh, <laughs> you got a lot better shot if you're not doing it alone. God never intended for us to do it alone, but in union, in community with one another. We call that discipleship. We're here to help you and to walk with you on that journey. I encourage you to take advantage of that. Worship team's going to come back. We're gonna, they're going to lead us in a song called Spirit of the Living God. And it really is a petition You'll, you'll see it when we sing it. It's really a song of attentiveness, of just kind of focusing in on the Spirit of Jesus um, that comes to us because Jesus was broken and poured out and is the result of our feasting on the abundance of God. And so, God, would you uh, just stir our hearts to receive as we sing this song and as we've taken the elements of your broken body and your shed blood, may we now receive the abundance of your household in the person of Christ. Fill us afresh with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.